we going today? We are going to just cover the first 20 verses of chapter 41. Um, we went through in this new section God's promise of an exile. He's going to have Babylon, uh, Babylonians come in and they're going to grab the Israelites from Jerusalem and haul them off. So now God is promising you know, there will be a better time. There will be a better time. He's giving comfort. And now we're going to look at he's offering himself to the nations. And I love this passage because of all things, it includes us. And this, this is a, in a unique setting that we're going to go through over the next couple of weeks because you've got to get the image that this is a courtroom scene. It's the best way to describe it. Um, and I thought it was how fitting because they wrote me into jury duty again. I, tr I tried my famous trick where I just accidentally forget to call in. And then I call in Thursday night and find out that I'm excused. But um, they caught me. And, uh, you know, and you can't call. They say if you're, if you're in, in quarantine or if you have a runny nose call, they don't answer. They're not answering. Um, so I get to start again Wednesday. I've never heard of that, but I'm supposed to start Wednesday. So I'm using this as practice, right? Practice for jury duty, this passage. So we're going to look at, in this section, verses 1 through 4, God calls in the world to settle an issue. In the first four verses, we're going to see God calling in the world to settle an issue. Then verses 5 and 6, we're going to see our response, and that is to run to idols. Our response will be to run to idols. And then after that, we're going to look at three pictures of consolation, or you could say our comfort after the loss, after this loss of land that they're going to be hauled off. We're going to look at verses 8 through 13, titled The Victorious Servant. The Victorious Servant. Then we're going to look at verses 14 through 16. This is the Bible's title. It's not mine. It's The Transformed Worm. And then verses 17 through 20, The Needy Sustained. Verses 17 through 20, the needy sustained. So let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just want to thank you so much. So, so much for just the picture we have seen of you and you coming as Savior Redeemer and seeing it so far back in Isaiah. Just truly amazing for us to see that you are there, you've been promised all along, and then as we get further along in Isaiah, how we get to see you coming back as, as the ultimate conqueror and king. So just be with us, quiet our hearts, quiet our minds. May we focus solely on you and, and listening to the word that you're bringing. We just love you so much, amen. So chapter 41, verses 1 through 20. Let's go through it. 
It says, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us draw together, let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up the one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up the nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails, so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incest against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. Who shall seek you, those to contend with you? but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth, and you shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff, you shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel you shall glory." The poor and the needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. And I will put in the wilderness the cedar the acacia, the myrtle, the olive, I will set in the desert, the cypress, the plain, 
and the pine together, that they may see and know and may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. So verses 1 through 4, God calls in the world to settle an issue. And like I said before, here is the picture of the courtroom scene. And the idea is, you don't want to be a defendant in this courtroom scene. When you come in and you see that God is the judge, he's also the jury, and he's also the prosecutor, you, re you realize this is going to have one end. So at the, the bottom of verse 1, we see that when it says, let us draw together, let us draw together near for judgment. And while being in court, even as a, as a bystander, can be very unsettling, this is an invitation to come. It's not a summons, it's an invitation. And the nations are being invited to come and share God's blessing. But we're going to see, they're going to flee, they're going to flee God, and they're going to make idols out of their own hands that they have control over. In this courtroom, they have no control. Also in verse 1, he tells the nations to come in and be silent. He says, listen to me in silence. And what we learned earlier going through Isaiah is when you see coastlands, it refers to the nations, the rest of the world. Renews their strength is key here. It's the exact same words that we went through last week when we looked at Al's favorite verse in Isaiah 40:31. If you ever got one of Al's work emails, that was always in the footer, that same exact verse. So being the same words, it links these two verses together. The cool thing is, though, is the second one that we're looking at today is meant for Gentile nations. Um, and it's the same strength that was being offered to the people of Judah. So right here, we see already that God is offering the world, letting them know that they have a Savior, and it's Christ, and He's coming. And they were going to be, or we are going to be, on the same level as His people are now. I almost, we were, like I said, at at a children's thing, Billy B's, and there were some nice Jewish people there. I wanted to stroll up and ask them if they read Isaiah 41. It's like, we're on the same level. I don't know if they would have got the joke, but... So the heart of what Isaiah gets and wants to share here is that what we know today, that because of Christ, we're fellow heirs in him. Ephesians 2, 18 and 19 says... For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of Christ. In verse 2, this is where it usually goes wrong. Um, man also often, as you look and study this section, you see what man does. Verses 2 through 4 describe a non-specific conquest. 
but this is where it goes bad because a lot of scholars spend time telling you who this king was, um, missing the point of what God is actually saying here. They want to prove that they're right in their belief, whether it's Abraham, whether it's Joshua, or whether it's Cyrus, or maybe somebody else. But they're missing what God is trying to get across in his message here. And here's the bottom line. No matter who the human king was who had this successful campaign, God wants us to know through Isaiah that he has all authority in it. It's done by his rules, and he is in charge of all world events. All events originate in heaven. All rulers, no matter who they are, are stirred and guided by God. All kingdoms rise, and they fall at his direction. So what what we've gone over earlier is God is not surprised at any direction in human history. You never will hear God say, boy, I didn't see that one coming. Never going to happen. And stirred here means awakened to point out that God woke this ruler up and placed this action on their heart. And then looking at the directions, the east, the east would have signified Palestine, and the Philistines were a, a constant enemy. I know going through the, the year in reading, I'm wrapping up Second Samuel, and you, you got to fully agree. It's like, boy, they'd go out, David would just rout them, and they'd come back again. It's like, what is going on? There's no learning curve. I don't know why. They would just come out and David would thrash them and they'd go back out again. And then later, we'll see a reference coming from the north. And we know every major invasion that came upon them came from the north. Now we look at it. He gives up the nations before him. He makes them like dust before his sword. And this points us to the fact that no matter who is physically leading the charge, God is in control, and in this case, words like dust and stubble are used to show how quickly God wants his judgment executed. If you get that idea, especially in our valley with our wind, you see leaves, tumbleweeds, whatever else, go blowing through. Quickly, quickly, gone. Come in and gone. Verse 3, this is a great picture verse great picture verse. So it gives us the idea of a king moving through the battle so quickly that he comes through unscathed while the land behind him is devastated. And it tells us, so we get the image that he moves so quickly through the land that it seems that his horse's feet don't even touch the ground. He is safe, but everything behind him, he leaves completely devastated. So in verse 4, we see God in this thing is asking the judge and jury, also God, this rhetorical question. Who has performed and done this? Who has led this conquest? Who caused it? In verse 4, he gives the answer that it was indeed he who was from the beginning and is first 
and he will also be there with his people at the end. No one but God could do it. And then verses 5 and 6, it's our response to all this, is to run to idols. We see in verse 1, God invite us to come in, draw near to the one true God, but the world instead ran to idols. Verses 5 and 6, we see the nations are offered God, but they are afraid, rightly so. But instead of bowing in that fear and worshiping God, they turned back to their pagan neighbors. They drew strength from them and their disobedience and made more idols. And in verse 7, we see how powerful these idols are, right? They're so powerful that when they're done, they need to nail them to something so they can stay upright and not fall. It gives you a power just how mighty they are. And then look going on to verses 8 through 20. We're going to look at the three pictures of consolation or comfort after this loss. Verses 1 through 7, God makes his case that the idols of the world are useless and the pagan world is destined for destruction. So now God's going to give us three pictures. He's going to show us three pictures or evidence of his divine intervention. So verses 8 through 13, we're going to see the victorious servant. In verses 8 and 9, we see that special relationship with Abraham and God. And God refers to him, if you can imagine this, as his friend. It's amazing. God reminds the world that he chose Abraham and did not cast him off, and that relationship extended even through the lineage of Abraham that brought us Christ, and then will later extends through all of us as Gentiles. And was Abraham perfect? No. We know that, right? By going through Genesis, you saw every mistake he made to the point where he feared man and did not trust God in times. But he grew over that, so he became even stronger in his faith, and God used him to make his people. Looking at verses 10 through 13, we see 10 and 13 are very close to the same message, and they will serve as bookends by telling us not to fear God, that he is with us, and again, the mention of that strong right hand that we see all through Isaiah. 11 and 12 form this perfect song from Isaiah. It is four balanced lines and gives us a picture of God taking care of all of our enemies. I mean, really taking care of all our enemies. We know they were there one minute and then they wanted to battle, but the next minute you look, there's nothing there. They're gone. They're missing. So why are we afraid? 8 and 9, Abraham and Jacob as God's servants. The term for servant was based on the Old Testament era history of a servant. A servant, we know, could decide to stay with his master and, and not be freed. 
And he was protected in this manner once he did that by the law. So he may have seemed at the bottom of the cultural heap as a servant, but if you messed with him, you would have to deal with his master. And in this case, the servant God names is by divine choice. Think about that. Abraham, and then the lineage through him, passed on to Jacob, not Esau. And they were all chosen by a divine God that said, you will be my people. They were not the likely choices, but God called who he called and worked out that line through him. And the same is with you, right, as a believer? You were called before time ever began to be his. And we need to remember that, that we are a called servant of God and behave in that manner. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8 reminds us about God's people. It says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Verse 9 says, He called his people from the furthest corners, staying to them, and for us in the same way, saying to them, for us in the same way, I have chosen you, and I will not cast you off. Today, in the New Testament, we say it this way. John 10, 28 through 30. John 10, 28 through 30. Jesus talking, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father am one. And it's a very powerful statement if you think about that, because once God has decided anything, it's decided. And he has decided that we are his, so that's it. And the good thing is, when he makes decisions, they are never written in pencil. Never. They are firm and and true. Now, verse 10 is one of the greatest verses ever. The greatest verses ever says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, because I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So we receive divine aid in situations. And we, we really need to grow in our understanding of God through his word and grow in this knowledge that we can trust God since he never changes. His promises never change. Therefore, we can rely on this verse to remind us of his love and his power when we give in to fear in our life, no matter what it is. Just one of those verses 
If you haven't, you should mark this down and remember it and rely on it. Verses 11 and 12. This is that section of song of Isaiah is singing. Again, you're lucky. Most of this is a song from Isaiah. I'm not going to sing it to you. But this section, Isaiah is singing, and this is a very powerful, verses 11 and 12. Like I said before, it's four balanced lines. 11 begins with that word, behold. We know this means, give me your attention. Give me your attention for what I'm going to tell you. And this showing us that those that are incensed against God's people, or those that would oppose God's people, or think they have a case against God's people, fail. They are put to shame, and when you look for them, you can't find them because they're completely vanished. Verse 13 again matches 10, and it reminds us that above everything else, everything else going on in the world, everything, God is determined to help his people you. God is emphasizing by stating us to us, fear not. Why? Because he is God. What does that mean? It means he was the first and he'll be there at the end and he has determined to help us. Verses 14 through 16, the transformed worm. Again, weird title, it's not mine. And this is what God is showing us. Because none of us want that nickname in life, right? Of all the nicknames you can get, no one wants to be called the worm. It's someone that's basically weak, powerless, and think about it. Um, I think everyone in this room except Katie would pick up a worm. <laughs> and, and think about when you were a child. I mean, you'd see a caterpillar. The best thing to do. Catch a caterpillar watch it, put it in a jar, poke air holes. Second thing after the jar, you poke air holes and then watch them grow into a butterfly. Greatest thing ever. Um, I did that as a child, went to teach my children, forgot air holes. It didn't go well. Children, this is death. So the, the worm could never fight though. It could not put up a a battle couldn't do anything that's why you see the youngest of of humans birds whatever can take care of a worm no problem so in verse 14 this worm symbolizes an inferior person unable to compete the task before him there's no defense for the common worm and no one fears them well almost no one fears them Verse 15 says, the worm, the men of Israel, will what? They'll grind mountains and crush them. They're going to be transformed. How? Because God is their help. And their Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Redeemer. What a great word that is. And the picture we get of Redeemer, if you think about it, we see that in the book of Ruth when Boaz came in and redeemed, redeemed a helpless woman and her daughter-in-law, you know, Ruth and Naomi. They couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't. Boaz came in and redeemed her. 
he became the next in line and fulfilled his right to redeem them. That was a human redeemer. That's the example we get, and it's a great example because if you think of what God did there, when you look at the lineage of Jesus, you see Boaz and Ruth, not just Boaz. They get both names in there. He became next in line to fulfill and redeem them. But Christ is our Redeemer. How much more is that? You have the Christ who's mentioned all in this Old Testament. He is our Redeemer now. So if we think of verses 10 and 13, we see why we have no need to fear. Christ is our Redeemer. He will strengthen his feeble people and remove their enemies, and then they will transform. They'll be stronger than this little worm and take care of great deeds. And now once transformed, verses 15 and 16 give us a picture of taking on seemingly seemingly insurmountable obstacles. So a threshing sled that's mentioned here, it was a heavy, heavy wood platform. On the bottom of it was sharp stones and heavy metal objects that were underneath, and it would be dragged across fields, and it would be dragged over crops to separate the crops from everything else. That way the workers would come in and they would take all the unusable and stack them in piles and the wind would take them away. Or they would shake and, and, and throw the chaff up and let it blow away. But the picture we get here is the unusable parts, the parts that there's no need for, is piled up and gale force winds take them away, never to be seen again. 17 through 20, this is the needy sustained, the needy sustained. Here God goes into his closing statement in the courtroom scene. And he's talking about the future and what it's going to look like, the new heavens and the new earth. His people will be sustained and they will lack for nothing. 17, the helpless and the crushed under oppression. We get this picture of oppression and what it looked like all the way back even from Isaiah 10:2, uh, when the Jews were harsh to their own people, not protecting them, not providing for the weak, but oppressing them, taking all they could from them and harming them. And then this move, this, this picture he gives us, is of the, almost like the Exodus, when he was bringing his people to their promised land. And we're reminded as we think back to that chapter how God took care of his people while they were in that Exodus. Verses 18 and 19, walking through that desert in the Exodus, it gives us a picture, and we're reminded, um, give us the picture of the desert that they are living in. And in that environment, what could be 
more important than water and shade. And while in the Exodus scenes that we've seen, water came from a single source, right? God would have Moses go up and, and a rock would be used and water would come gushing out of it. But in 18, we see that water is basically coming from everywhere. Water will be found in barren heights. Um, a multiplication of water by placing springs where there is water to provide more access. And then transforming the dry, parched land into lands filled with water. Also, if you look at the trees he's providing here, I know it took me a while to figure out there's no fruit on those. These are great shade trees. He knew exactly what he's doing. I'm providing these for you, and there's a purpose. Um, great, great shade trees. And they're used as shelter for God's people. The thing, too, is these trees are not typically found together, but God's going to do all he pleases for his people. So verse 20, God is bringing this all together, and when his people see what he has done, they will fully understand that it's only God that could have done this. So imagine if our valley became lush again, and the, all those dry riverbeds flowed, and the dry lake beds were filled with water again. And every type of tree, even though the USDA says it won't grow here, grew here. It would be amazing. Yes, there would be a few people that would say it was because of climate change, but the rest would just be appreciative. And we know that Jesus, in full obedience to God, has put this plan in motion for the new heavens and the new earth, and we get to be there rejoicing when the time comes. So at this point in the passage, the prosecution rests in this heavenly courtroom. So next week, God is going to tell the idolaters to make the case for their deaf and dumb small g gods. And he's calling, by calling in these idolaters to make a statement, it kind of reminiscent, if you remember, how the prophets of Baal and Elijah went at it. Um, they're going to make their testimony in court if they can. So knowing an extreme period was coming, it was going to come, this evasion of Babylon and the deportation of God's people, he is pointing them to a better time, this ultimate period of grace and salvation from a tough, tough world. They earned their punishment. The exile was coming. They deserved it. They refused to listen to God and his prophets. In fact, they wiped them all out. But during this, the God was pointing them to the ultimate prize that they would have. And, and this is for us too, right? We see the foundation is already being set. Um, it's already being set for how the world will end. We see humans already conditioned about how to stay in compliance for how to buy and sell. I had my 
one of my administrative assistants had to go get negative testing and plan where to get them so she could gain access to the restaurants and hotels she wanted to be at in Palm Springs. So it's already conditioning. It's already starting to get that in human's mind is you need to do this so you can buy and sell. And where else do we see this? So Jesus, when he was here the first time as, as Savior, where did he live? He lived in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, and it was occupied, right? They had an evil, evil government that was ruthless. The Romans were there. Jesus didn't take time posting that, you know, Pilate or King Agrippa was just buffoons and they need to be nicer to the people. He didn't do that. He instead met people where they were that had divine appointments with him to receive salvation. Imagine, just imagine if we did that, if we took that time to pray and be ready to have divine appointments with people. I know I need to do better at it. And, and it's true though, like when you get out of your comfort zone, when you get out of the places you're normally at, like work, um, home, and other things, you see people in their own environment and you see how confused they are. If you want to see that, go to a big city. Go to where we were in, in Orange County. Go to LA. You see how confused people are in regards to the message of Christ. And they listen to the culture and the culture that tells them they're doing everything fine. They can change who they are. You know, they were assigned at birth, but they can change that. They can, they can do anything they want to, but still, listening to that, they're still confused, they're still depressed, and, and they try and act like they're conforming to the world, but they're still a hurting people. They're missing something, and they need to have the people that are praying to have a divine appointment rally around them and talk to them. Because right now, I guarantee you, they're feeling like they're walking through a desert, that they're thirsty, they have no shade. So they really need people like us to point them to God and the way that they're going to have salvation. And knowing God provides this refreshment and this protection, I encourage you not just to go through your day and checking your assignments, checking that they're completed, like work, home, kids, but really seek out those spiritual assignments. And you'll never know when they show up. I got to share with my community group that um, I have a person that works for me, and her last name is Church. So and she, there were some issues regarding her work. So I had a meeting, and I just put on the thing without even thinking about it, Church Matters. So that opened a door though. I had people that know I'm a believer wondering why they're in a meeting to talk about church until they figured out who I was talking about. And then we got to have a discussion about forever and what God means. So that was really, really cool. May not do anything, but at least the seeds were planted. So 
I guarantee you when the disciples were following Jesus too, they would wonder why they were where they were, when they were there, and what was going to happen. And then they would witness Jesus bring salvation to a purple, to a person. I guarantee you the world, and by the world's standards, the scene that took place with the Samaritan woman at the well never should have happened never should have happened. They never should have traveled through that area. Jews didn't did that. Jews did not do that. Um, Jesus surely, by all code, by all law, never should have talked to a woman. Never should have. But the result was salvation was brought not only to that woman, but by most of the people in that city. What a great miracle. So I encourage you, encourage me, Let's accept this challenge. Let's do it. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just want to thank you for your word, for the many gifts you've given us, for this promise of this incredible future. And not just a future for a part-time, but a future forever. It's just amazing. Amazing to see the, how you'll provide for us, and then it's much more incredible to think of why you're providing for us. Why us? Why this people? But it's out of your great, great love that you chose us and we get to partake forever. So help us to do things, cool things like memorize verse 10 to remember that no matter what, we don't need to fear that you will vanquish our enemy. Maybe not tomorrow, but it will happen. That we need to point others to you. So when that day comes, that we will have the best celebration in heaven as we see them around the table, no matter what part we had, whether we just planted seeds or whether we got to do the harvesting. We thank you so much for that. Amen. So in regards to that.